So we are continuing our Lent sermon series and our gospel reading today comes at a pivotal moment in Mark's gospel. Immediately before the verses we had read has been that high point where Peter recognises and names Jesus as Messiah for the first time. Now Mark shifts his focus towards Jesus' upcoming death. As three times in three chapters, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to suffer, die and rise again. And today we're looking at that passage alongside our reading from Genesis, which tells us of a key moment in Abraham's journey, where God makes a special promise to him. So we're going to start with Abraham in Genesis, and then we're going to turn to Mark's Gospel. And in both of those narratives, we're going to see something about who God is, an invitation to respond, and a promise for the future. So first, Genesis 17. It's on page 17. That's easy to remember. And if you want to pick up one of the Bibles from under the chairs at the end of the rows and pass them down and follow, please do. Just a little bit of context, though, the story so far for Abraham. He has been called by God to leave his home and go to a new land that God will show him. And he's been promised that he will become a great nation and be blessed to be a blessing to others. Abraham obeyed God's call. He set off. He made his way to the land of Canaan. And God then reaffirmed his promise to give Abraham descendants, despite the fact that Abraham and Sarah were a little bit past the age of having children. I think if they were in this church, they'd definitely be coming to Connections. We're told in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's chapter 15. But immediately after that, chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah begin to doubt. And they take matters into their own hands. Sarah puts forward her slave girl, Hagar. And Ishmael is born, the child of Abraham and Hagar. Not the most promising of starts. But then we land in Genesis 17. And by this point, Abraham is 99 years old. I don't know if we've got any 99-year-olds here this morning, but yeah, you can relate, I'm sure. At that point, God appears to him again, saying, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Before we get to that promise and that covenant, let's firstly pause on what we see about who God is as he reveals himself to Abraham. When we see the name Lord in little capital letters in our Bibles, it's the name Yahweh, I am, the name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. This is a special name which God uses to reveal himself at key moments, a personal name, showing his unchanging nature, his faithfulness, his constancy. And he also refers to himself as God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, which literally means God the mountain one. It's a name that signifies power and might. So this is the God who reveals himself to Abraham. Yahweh, El Shaddai, the holy, faithful, unchanging, powerful, mighty God. It's hardly surprising that Abraham responds by falling face down before him. 
And this awesome God invites Abraham to respond to him. I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. I think that both Abraham and God know that Abraham hasn't always walked faithfully before him. But it's an invitation to begin again, a fresh start. And God goes on to invite Abraham to respond by circumcising himself and every male descendant after him and everyone in his household as a sign of being set apart by God for the generations to come. Now, don't get this wrong. Circumcision was a sign that they already were God's people. It's not something they had to do to make themselves worthy. And the Apostle Paul was writing to Galatians later on who was struggling with this question about whether faith was enough or whether you had to jump through all sorts of hoops and do this, don't do that. And Paul quotes back that verse from Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And as it was for Abraham, so also for us. God counts us as part of his people when we put our faith in him. And then he invites us to show the reality of our response by how we live our lives. It's not that we do stuff to get us in, quite the opposite. That's a really important thing that I'm going to come back to later, so try and hold on to that, that idea. So God reveals himself to Abraham, calls him to respond, and then he makes a wonderful promise to him in the form of a covenant, an unchanging commitment that can't be broken. God gives Abraham and Sarah new names. They'd previously been Abraham and Sarai, but now Abraham means father of many. God is reaffirming the promise that Abraham and Sarah will have a child of their own, and that will lead to a whole nation of descendants in the future. God reaffirms that he will give them the land of Canaan, and he will have a special relationship with his people. I will be their God. God describes this as an everlasting covenant. God's commitment to his people is unwavering, even when they let him down. Maybe I should say, even when we let him down. His love and his faithfulness never change. He is Yahweh, El Shaddai, the mighty, holy, faithful God. We're going to turn now to Mark chapter 8, which is on page 1012. And we'll see these same three themes in Jesus' conversation with his disciples. We're going to see something about who Jesus is, an invitation to respond, and a promise for the future. So first, we see that Jesus is the Messiah, as declared so by Peter a few verses before our passage begins. Now, this whole conversation in Mark 8 takes place near a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's in Gentile territory, there's not many Jewish inhabitants around, and it's called Caesarea in tribute to the Emperor Caesar Augustus, and Philippi because it was founded by Philip, and they're trying to distinguish it from another place also called Caesarea. In that city, there was a temple to the Emperor Augustus. And I think there's something quite important and symbolic about the fact that Jesus is recognized as Messiah first here, where the prevailing culture says Caesar is Lord. And yet this cuts across that, Jesus is Lord, challenges that prevailing culture of emperor worship. So Jesus is Messiah, but he's not the sort of Messiah that anybody was really expecting. 
about 100 years before Jesus came on the scene, there was an anonymous Jewish writer who wrote something about what the Jews of the time were expecting in their Messiah. And he he wrote this. Behold, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, and gird him with strength, that he might shatter unrighteous rulers, and that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her down to destruction. Quite uncomfortable to read that in today's world, isn't it? This is what the Jews of Jesus' time were pinning their hopes on. They were looking for a Messiah who would be a warrior king to set them free from Roman oppression and lead them into battle to win an amazing victory. But Jesus paints a very different picture. Jesus teaches his disciples that he must suffer and die and then rise again. He doesn't just say it once, but he repeats it twice more in the following chapters. In chapter 9, 31 and 10, verse 33. Jesus is going to triumph not through war, but through suffering. Now this shouldn't have come as a surprise to his Jewish listeners, because it was exactly what the prophet Isaiah had written. Let me read a little bit from Isaiah 53, verse 11. The prophet Isaiah is describing the suffering servant who will take our sin upon himself in words that point clearly to Jesus. And he says this, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, Because he poured out his life unto death. This was always God's plan. That the Messiah would come and set his people free. But not free from Roman occupation, but free from sin and death. And his triumph would come not through victory in battle, but through his own suffering and death. And back in Mark chapter 8, Peter really struggles with this. And he begins to rebuke Jesus. You can just imagine the scene. Peter says, no, Lord, this is not how it's supposed to be. You can't go through all of this. I mean, you've got to love Peter, right? I think we all identify with him. But Jesus' own response to Peter is clear. Peter is seeing things from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. And even more than that, Jesus recognizes that Satan is using Peter to try and tempt Jesus away from the path that God has for him. And that's why he rebukes him so strongly. Get behind me, Satan. So we see that Jesus is the Messiah, but not the sort of Messiah that anyone was expecting. Let's move on now to consider how he invites his disciples to respond to him. And again, this would have surprised his listeners. But I think for us, sort of familiarity dulls the sharpness of this. But just hear it again now as if for the first time. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So it's not just Jesus who's going to walk a cross-shaped path to lay down his life. But his disciples we are called to follow him along that path also. So we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking what it might look like in practice for us in our own lives to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. And I'm going to suggest four thoughts 
of what this might involve. First, the invitation to deny ourselves is a call to turn away from our natural, self-centered desires to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. This is going to look different for each of us, but I wonder whether you've ever felt a sort of prompt from God to maybe make a meal for someone who's struggling or phone up a friend who's having a hard time or invite someone out for coffee. Have you ever felt those prompts? And then have you ever, because I know I have, chosen just to ignore it because you'd rather spend the night in watching TV or doing something that you find relaxing or want to do rather than put yourself out to go the extra mile to help and serve someone else? It's hard, isn't it? But maybe there's something there for you that just prompts a thought that resonates with Jesus' call to deny ourselves and follow him. Second, it's a call to recognize our own dependence on God, to realize that nothing we can do will earn our place in God's family, but we can only come as we are, recognizing our need of him and kneel at his feet. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. A part of denying ourselves and following Jesus is recognizing that everything we have and are comes from him and is ultimately his, and being prepared then to offer it back in his service. So Lent is a great time to take a look at how we use our time, our talents, and our money, and ask whether God is prompting us to make a change in any of those areas, to offer a little bit more of what he has given us back to him, to serve him and bless others. Third, this invitation is an encouragement to trust in God and lean into him, when life is hard, not try and go it alone in our own strength. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. So as we take up our cross and follow Jesus, we recognize that for him, the journey led through death to new life. And so for us, as we die to the temptation to take the easy route when life is tough, but choose to keep following Jesus' path, so God's new life springs up in us as we see the truth of these verses for ourselves. He is enough. He gives us strength, peace, and dare I say, even joy in the challenges of life. So let's keep holding on to that and keep trusting in him. Fourth, it's a challenge to dare to be open about our faith. Paul writes in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Yes, there might be a cost to us in speaking to others about our faith. 
we might be scared of them making fun of us or not wanting to know us anymore. But as we reflect on Jesus' journey to the cross, which cost him everything, so these much smaller costs to us pale into insignificance. And as part of our response, we will want to honour him with our words and our actions more than we will want to seek the approval of people around us. I wonder if there's a way that God is prompting you to step out and share your story of faith with someone you've not spoken to about this before. Or maybe somebody you could invite to church in the coming weeks or at Easter. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. I know it's really hard, isn't it? And as I reflect on this for myself, I'm all too aware of the many ways in which I fall short of this invitation. And it was the same for the disciples. They got it wrong again and again and again. Just think of Peter denying three times that he knew Jesus on the night before he died. But God knows we're not perfect, and he doesn't expect us to be. You know, Abraham got it wrong too. And remember that verse I quoted earlier? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith in Jesus is enough. The rest is just how we respond to his invitation to follow. And Jesus knows this will be a work in progress throughout our whole lifetime. But we have the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and will change us little by little to become more like him. And we have Jesus who forgives us when we get it wrong and come back to him and offers us a fresh start again and again and again, just as many times as we need. So we've seen that Jesus is the Messiah, but not the sort that anyone expected. And we've explored his invitation for us to follow him along the way of the cross. Finally, now let's consider his promise for the future. Verse 35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is talking about the eternal life in his presence that he promises to all who follow him. This is what it means to save our life if we offer it up to him as we follow him along this cross-shaped path. And just as he made a covenant with Abraham to seal his promise to him, so also with us. At the Last Supper, Jesus says to his followers, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. So every time we gather around the Lord's table to share communion together, We remember this new covenant sealed by his blood and we give thanks to him for his amazing promise to us. So as I finish, can I suggest two ways in which we might respond? First, I wonder whether there's any of us here today who haven't yet acknowledged Jesus as Messiah and Lord for ourselves. If that's you, could today be the day that you say with Peter, Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are my Messiah come into my life. He laid down his life for you so that you could know God as your father. And he longs for you simply to say yes to that invitation and know the promise of eternal life that he offers. And secondly, perhaps there are others of us who've been following Jesus along the way for many years, but have lost sight of what it really means to follow that call to deny ourselves take up our cross and follow him. 
what practical step could you take this Lent to recommit yourself to that call? Walking in his footsteps in the way of the cross by the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen.